Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. We're in the book of Genesis, so the very big, the very first uh, book of your Bible, pretty easy to find, and uh, it's the book of beginnings. And uh, the very first question that maybe, all I know I asked when I studied is, is who wrote the book of Genesis? Um, There's five books of the Bible, which are known as the Pentateuch, the first five books of our Bible, our Old Testament, and they're collectively known as the books of of Moses. And what's interesting about that is the divisions uh, that are within the book of Genesis. Uh, For example, chapters 1, verse 1 through 2, verse 3 is basically an introduction to the genealogies that are found in the book of Genesis. When you get to chapter 2, verse 4, and you go all the way to chapter 4, verse 26, we're told that it's the genealogy of heaven and earth. And in that genealogy, uh, it'll include the beginnings, so to speak, because that's genealogy, the beginnings of also sin, death, and murders. A lot of, a lot of things in there. In chapter 5, verse 1 to 6 through 8, uh, 6 verse 8, excuse me, we have the genealogy of Adam. When you get to chapter 6, verse 9 through 9, verse uh, 29, it's the genealogy of Noah. When you get to chapter 10, verse 1 to th- uh, 11 through 9, it's a genealogy of the sons of Noah. And uh, when you get to chapter 11, verse 10, uh, all the way through verse 26, it's the genealogy of Shem. When you get to 11, verse 27 to 25, verse 11, you have the genealogy of Terah. Terah was uh, Abraham's father. When you get to chapter 25, verse 12 through 25, verse 18, you have the genealogy of Ishmael. When you get to 25, verse 19 to 35, verse 29, you have the genealogy of Isaac. And then uh, chapter 36 through seven, uh, 37 is the genealogy of Esau. And then when you finally get to chapter 37, verse 2, through the rest of the book of Genesis, you have the genealogy of Jacob. Now, why do I bring that up? It's fascinating to me that they have all these genealogies in here. And what probably is the case is that Moses probably compiled and edited each one of these genealogies, which could very well have likely been written on clay tablets um, by different individuals. It could have been Adam or, you know, different people down through history before Moses. And when Moses was in the wilderness, he probably, that's probably when he compiled these and probably edited it. And so uh, we have the book of of Genesis, the book of Moses. And so uh, all that to say, I think it's safe to assume that Moses is not necessarily the author, but I don't know what you want to call it, the editor or whatever, uh, compiled this book. It's interesting in the New Testament, after Jesus' resurrection, he's uh, on he's he's traveling on a road, and there's two disciples on the and they're going to Emmaus, and Jesus comes alongside them, and uh, it says in Luke chapter twenty verse uh, twenty seven says, "And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself." Probably beginning with the book of very book of Genesis, going through Jesus gave a Bible study. Uh, about all the different things that that uh, uh, point to him or concerning him, and I know the first time we went through the entire book of the Bible or all the books of the Bible, and and again we're going to see that as we go through the Old Testament, we'll see uh, the things that are concerning Jesus, the things that are pictures of Jesus. Um, so uh, very excited about that. Well, the book of Genesis is actually a very uh, important book. 
It tells us of the beginning, and not only the beginning of our universe, which we'll look at this morning, and all that is in it, not only the beginning of mankind, but all the major doctrines of Christianity are found in the book of Genesis. When you're studying your book, when you're, when you're doing your own Bible study or reading through the book of Genesis, there's a rule of, of, of interpretation, a rule that you use of studying. It's called the rule of first mention. And what that means is the first time something is mentioned in the Bible, it's significant. And you can learn a lot from that. Well, Genesis is replete with the first mention of many things. We have the first mention of sin. We have the first mention of atonement, of grace, of redemption, faith, justification, salvation, the institute of marriage. All these things are found in Genesis for the very first time, and so they're significant. So Genesis is a very important book to study and to read. In fact, it's foundational to the rest of the Bible. Because it provides the context for man's current state and why we need a Savior. It provides the reason why we exist. Now, there's two basic two beliefs. You either believe in evolution or believe in, in, in creation. And uh, evolution is basically a belief that a series of random events brought about your and my existence. And if everything was random, there's no purpose there's no meaning to how and to why you are here. And, you know, we, we get all upset, and, and we should rightly get upset when we hear about school shootings and, and all this violence that's going on with our children. But if you think about it, we've taught our kids for how many generations now that, uh, that there's no purpose in life, that they were just the result of a cosmic accident. And so it's no wonder kids have this sense of no purpose and they commit these horrible acts of violence. It's no wonder that our society allows women to indiscriminately terminate their pregnancies. It's because we have lost that that foundation. And because Genesis is a foundational book of the Bible, it's also no wonder that it's under attack. And the book of Genesis is under attack, uh, the things that are are foundational in the Bible. You know, if if someone can... uh, challenge or or attack the integrity and the authority of the foundational book of Genesis, if it can be undermined, there's so many things that are supported on that foundation found in Genesis that if if that's the case, then the integrity and authority of everything else in the Bible can be undermined as well. But on the same token... If you can accept and believe the first four verses, or excuse me, the first four words in the book of Genesis, in the beginning, God, you won't have problems with the rest of the Bible because the rest of the Bible is built on that foundation. You know, the idea of how you and I got here, it really boils down to two competing beliefs. It's either in the beginning, God, or in the beginning, bang. I mean, that's, that's it. It's, it's one or the two. And... Uh, Unfortunately, over the years, uh, you know, the scientific community has just, you know, used to, I remember when I was in grade school, evolution was, it was the theory of evolution. They don't call it the theory of evolution anymore. It's, they say it's a fact, you know, and everywhere you go, it's just, it's, it's rammed down our throats that it's a fact, it's not a theory anymore. And what passes for scientific fact to many people, you know, Christians sometimes, over the years, they felt compelled to try to marry creation and evolution together and uh, to find a middle ground to bring it into harmony. And we're going to discuss... Uh, the problems with attempting to do that as we go through Genesis chapter 1. 
Anyways, that's enough of an introduction. Let's get into, into the Genesis. Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You know, if you were to take a poll of people and say, you know, what verse do they know of the Bible? I bet you believers, non-believers alike, they can probably quote that verse. Uh, there's many people that have read the Bible or they started reading the Bible and, and they at least read those four verse, those words, and maybe that for them, that's, that's it. I can't go beyond that because I can't get over, I can't get beyond that. Um, notice there in verse 1, God doesn't feel the need to prove his existence before he tells us how he created the universe. Just in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. His creation itself proves his existence. In fact, in Psalms 19, verse 1, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Paul wrote this in Romans 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse." God doesn't have to prove his existence. Creation itself proves his existence. There's two things that creation reveals to us. First of all, creation is designed. Um, Years ago, I read a book. It's called Darwin's Black Box. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of it. It's by a a guy by the name of Michael Behe. Uh, He was or still is a molecular biologist and not necessarily a Christian, but he, as he studied uh, molecular biology, he couldn't escape the fact that there's design in nature. And uh, the book's a fascinating book. I encourage you to read it um, if you ever get a chance. But one thing that we learn about creation is that it's designed. And if something is designed, it shouts that there's a designer responsible for the design. I mean, it, it just, you look at it in the world. You look at a, you know, go and look at man, man, beautiful structures like a Golden Gate Bridge or, you know, some of these skyscrapers around, and, and you just go, wow, somebody had to design that. And yet people look at creation, they go, well, it just happened. You know, just, there's no designer. A design speaks of a designer. And the other thing that we learn from that is, is a creator or a designer is always greater than their creation or design. There's got to be something greater than the creation or the design. And, you know, there's a question I think a lot of people would ask. Uh, if everything, or excuse me, if God created everything, well, who created God? Have you ever thought that before? Well, the answer is God is self-existent, he's eternal, and he's self-sufficient. You see, if a person can't accept the thought that there is an all-powerful, self-existent God who created everything, and instead they believe that everything came into existence by the Big Bang. Well, who or what caused the Big Bang? You could just you could extrapolate that back and back and back. You know, nothing cannot cause something. Nothing cannot cause something. It's foolish to believe that. Even nature disproves that. We have the law of causality. Causality. Cause, whatever. (laughs) This is what it is. No effect can be greater than its cause. Nothing can't produce something. 
And so in Psalms 53.1, it says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. It's foolishness to say that nothing caused everything that we see around us. And so we just read here, in the beginning, God. And the Bible alone gives us the absolute origin of the universe. In the beginning. In other words, there was a definite beginning to time. God created time. God created the heavens. God created space. God created the earth. He created matter. Uh, you know, God exists outside of space and time. That's why in the Bible, God, God declares things as they are even before they happen because God exists out of that. You know, we, we have time. We think of time. We think of space. But God exists outside of that. Well, and I was thinking about this this week as I was preparing this message. You know, what did God do before he created everything? You ever thought about that? Well, you know, it's, it's really an irrelevant thing because time is irrelevant in God's economy. So there wasn't like this long time before because God exists outside of time. But, but what did God do before he created the universe? I don't know. It's difficult to wrap my brain around things like that. Uh, I, I do watercolor painting. And uh, um, usually, you know, it, I, I wish I'd do them on a regular basis. But to be honest with you, I really have to be inspired to do a painting. I have to, you know, I'll be for maybe a week or two before, I'll just start thinking about, man, I really like to paint this subject. And I'll have this idea in my mind of what I want to do. And, and then I'll receive this inspiration. And finally, I'll get the time. I'll sit down and I'm, like, I'm going to do this painting. And, uh, you know, even though time is irrelevant to God, the Bible does give us a hint at what he did before creation. Before he created you and me, before he created everything. In fact, before time, God was doing something. And the Bible gives us a hint to that. What was he doing? He was planning the redemptive work of Christ on the cross. It was planned by the Father. Listen to this, 1 Peter 1.20. He, speaking of Jesus, indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Even before mankind sinned, God already had a plan of salvation. You and I were chosen by the Father, and he has a plan and a purpose for each one of us. Ephesians 1.4, Paul says this, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Romans 8.29, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has a plan and a purpose for each one of us. Psalm 139.16, your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they all were written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. So what was God doing before creation? Man, he was thinking about you, and he was thinking about me. He was planning your and my salvation. You know, when you think about that, no one is insignificant to God. You, maybe you're here this morning, you feel insignificant. You know, I, I, I just feel insignificant in, in my family or in my, you know, my job. I'm, I'm the lowest guy in the totem pole or whatever. You, or maybe you just feel like just, you, just don't, you just feel really insignificant. To God, you're significant. God had a plan and a purpose for you from the foundation of the world. 
So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That word created, that verb, it's bara. And it's a verb meaning to create something from nothing. And in the Bible, the subject of this verb is always God because God alone can create something from nothing. You know, I can create something. Uh, you know, I, sometimes I, I used to get into, I like doing gourmet cooking, but I tell you, I don't do it just like, well, I'm going to throw this and that together. I have to follow a recipe. And, you know, I can do that. Um, I can create things, but it's not that verb bera. I need the raw materials first. I can create a painting. I don't know if they're all that good, but I can create one. But, man, I, I need paper. I need paint. Uh, you know, I, I need a brush. I need all those things. I need the raw materials, but not God. God didn't need anything. He created everything out of nothing. And it's interesting that God here is the Hebrew word Elohim. When you have Im on the end of the, of this, of the names, it, means, it makes it plural. Um, and again, so the rule of first mention comes into play here. We're introduced to God, Elohim. And what is significant about it? Well, it reveals the true nature of God, that he's a triune being. The triune nature of God is revealed to us. It's significant. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, in an effort to accommodate evolutionary theory years ago, decades ago, um, you know, we were told over and over again that the fossil record is millions and millions of years old. Uh, Christians came up with what is known as the gap theory. And... uh, According to the gap theory, God created the heavens and the earth long before he created Adam and Eve. And during that time, as they believe, is when Satan rebelled and fell from heaven, uh, came down to earth, and as a result, God destroyed his initial creation and recreated it with you and us, with us here. Um, and one of the arguments is, when it says the earth was without form and void, they, they, they believe that means the earth became without form and void. And uh, as a result of this destruction, now we have this fossil record uh, from that period that fits into the evolutionary millions and millions of years theory. And uh, some Christians still accept the gap theory. Maybe you're here this morning and and you're a gap theorist, I guess that's what you call them. Um, I'll be honest with you. The first time I taught through Genesis, I believed it was possible. Um, But I tell you what, I don't, I no longer believe it. And... uh, let me give you a few reasons why. First of all, that verb was, the very normal meaning of it, simply it was, was. <laughs> I mean, it can be translated become, but it's out of context here. Uh, and every Bible, all the accepted versions of the Bible use the word was. Um, if you go through the verses of Genesis, with the exception of Genesis 1, but you go through all the rest of the verses, um, it starts with the conjunction and. And so there's a sequence between each event that's described in the verses of creation. And uh, there's no hint of, uh, of this, this big gap of time between verses 1 and 2. Um, there's some verses in the Bible that talk about without form and void. Uh, Jeremiah 4.23, Isaiah 24.1, and Isaiah 45, verse 18. And, and, they, and this is a, one of the arguments uh, that gap theorists will use. Um, in each case here, the prophet uh, Isaiah or Jeremiah, they're referring to the context is this nation of Israel. Um, but uh, in each case here, 
the prophet refers to a wasted state due to the judgment of sin. And so a lot of people say, well, that's what happened here in verse 2. It's describing a condition brought about by judgment. But again, those other scriptures, the context is the state of Israel, the nation of Israel. It's not the original earth. Um, But that's not what really kind of nailed it for me. Uh, What nailed it for me that that I I no longer believe in it was something that uh, we had a, uh, I don't know if you remember the Answers in Genesis debates with Ken Ham and, uh, oh, the whatever that... The other guy, I forgot the history. Say it again. The science guy, Bill Nye the science I actually like Bill Nye the science guy, but, but I remember the, the debate that a, they had. I don't know if you ever saw that. And I don't remember if it was actually in that debate or after that debate, but Ken Ham said something that just, it, to me, is just like, wow, it makes sense. And, uh, you know, the Bible teaches us that death reigned through Adam, not before Adam. And uh, there was not any judgment against the earth until Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. And so without sin, there's no judgment. And without judgment, there's no death. And without death, there's no fossils. So uh, to me, that was like, that sealed it for me. Well, what about the ages of the fossils? And here, uh, I tried to educate myself. Um, You know, they use radiocarbon dating to date uh, material, and I want to just give you a little explanation here on carbon fourteen dating. And some of you might know this better than I do, but uh, let me just read this to you. When cosmic rays bombard the Earth's atmosphere, they produce neutrons. These excited neutrons then collide with nitrogen atoms in the atmosphere, changing them into radioactive carbon fourteen atoms. Plants absorb this carbon fourteen during photosynthesis. When animals eat the plants, the carbon-14 enters their bodies. The carbon-14 in their bodies breaks down to nitrogen-14 and escapes at the same rate as new carbon-14 is added, so the level of carbon-14 remains stable. When an animal dies, the carbon-14 continues to break down to nitrogen-14 and escapes, while no new carbon-14 is added. By comparing the surviving amount of carbon-14 to the original amount, Scientists can calculate how long ago uh, the animal died. So once the animal dies, they're not, they're not taking in that carbon-14. It's, it's kind of dissipating or it's changing to nitrogen. So they can calculate how much, you know, they can, they can basically date something based on that. Well, the half-life of carbon-14 is 5,730 years. And what that, what that means is half of the assumed amount of C-14 atoms has escaped by that time, and uh, the assumed amount of C14 or carbon 14 when a specimen was alive is assumed to be the same amount that is present in an animal living today. So they, they, have the, they know what the number of these atoms are supposed to be. Well, after about 100,000 years, fossils should have zero carbon 14 atoms in them because they've, 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 they've dissipated by that time, and a, and a specimen is to be considered carbon dead. At that point, well, the problem is they've found fossils that were assumed to be millions of years old with detectable levels of carbon 14 still present in them. So it's, it's impossible for them to be millions of years old. Now, evolutionists argue, well, those samples were contaminated, and uh, there somehow there was some contamination, carbon 14 introduced to the specimen. Well, there's a couple problems with that because. Uh, the very process for testing radiocarbon, they rigorously remove any of the contaminating materials. I mean, their process, they, they take in that into account. And uh, there have been so many 
specimens with carbon-14 found in them, that contamination of all of them, it's just, it's just not likely. Um, what's interesting, they found carbon-14 in material that would be considered carbon-dead, like coal. They found carbon-14 in diamonds, in oil, in marble. What's fascinating, too, they even found blood in a mosquito fossil. And the fossil, the mosquito fossil, was inside a rock that they thought was 45 million years old. So this carbon-14 is not a very accurate science. Um, One thing that I've learned in my studying here, amazingly, carbon-14 dating frequently turns up dates that fit closely to the time of Noah's flood. Imagine that. You know, I'm probably, you guys are probably like, but he's not that smart. And I'll tell you, I'm not that smart. A lot of this research I did, just going to Answers in Genesis, it's a great website if you want to look at it. Also, the Creation Research Institute. Those are two great resources. Um, there's all kinds of books that are available for you to read, but anyways, that's, that's where I did a lot of my research. Um, so going back to our study, what does verse 2 tell us? Let's read it again. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So the universe was called into existence by God, and it's in this elemental existence. It's unformed, it's unenergized, and it's not ready for habitation. But that's only momentarily, because then the Spirit of God begins to move. It says the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Um, I had a uh, Jehovah's Witnesses come to my house yesterday, and... and, uh, You know, I opened the door, and there's this older gentleman and his wife, or some lady anyways. I'm assuming it was his wife. And they started talking to me about this Bible study. And and it was cold. The wind was blowing. And I'm like, I just kind of cut to the chase. Hey, are you guys part of some organization? Oh, yeah, we're Jehovah's Witnesses. And uh, so then we started, they started going on and on. And I said, well, listen, I'm a born-again believer. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Well, I'm glad to hear that. And so anyways, going on and on. um, They don't believe that Jesus is God. And uh, so anyway, I had a discussion. They had a discussion with me. I had a discussion with them. Finally, their point, they said, well, you know, who did Jesus pray to when he was with his disciples? Did he pray to, and I said, he prayed to God. Well, doesn't that seem weird that Jesus would pray to himself? You know, that's one of their arguments. And, and anyways, I said, you know, if you take a look at Jehovah in the Old Testament, every place where Jehovah's speaking, it's Jehovah, right? And he, he wouldn't acknowledge it, but that's what they believe. Um, and I said, you get all the way to the book of Revelation. Jehovah's speaking in the book of Revelation. Tell me who is that? And at that point, he's like, you know, I said, I said, you know what, we're on two different planes. Talk to you later, you know. <laughs> um, so anyway, so they left, and I was, but I was like, oh. but, but they don't believe that Jesus is God. But John 1, Gospel of John chapter 1, tells us that God the Son spoke creation into existence. And here we have the God the Holy Spirit involved. Psalm 33, verse 6 says this, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. That word breath is ruach. It's the same word, the Hebrew word for the spirit. 
So here we have the Spirit of God hovering, and it conveys the idea of a bird sitting in a nest, hovering and brooding over her eggs, caring for these new lives. Um, it's the same word used in Deuteronomy 32.11. As an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings. So here you have the Spirit of God hovering over this, this mass, this formless, voidless, uninhabitable you know, this elemental existence here. It's a beautiful picture of God preparing to bring life into the world through his spirit. And you know what's kind of interesting? In Luke chapter 1, verse 35, the, the angel Gabriel is announcing to Mary the birth of Jesus, and he says this, the, the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. There are also... Therefore, also the Holy One who is born to, be, born to you will be called the Son of God. You get the picture of this Holy Spirit coming over Mary. Well, here the Holy Spirit is coming over um, what's going to be the earth. Uh, I like what Dr. Henry Morris said. The Spirit of God proceeded to move upon the face of the waters, literally vibrate in the presence of the waters. Waves of gravitational energy and waves of electromagnetic energy began to pulse forth from the great breath of God, the prime mover of the universe. The unformed earth material as well as the waters permeating it quickly coalesced into spherical form under the new law of gravity and the first material body, planet earth, have been formed at a point in space. Well, let's move on here. Verse 3. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Did you catch that? God created light, and it's not the sun, and it's not the stars. Now, some people have a hard time understanding that. How, how can that be? How can, how can there be light without the sun? But remember, in New Jerusalem, there will be no need for the sun because the Lord himself will be the light there. So it's not, it's, it's not when you look at it at that, it's, it's not strange. And the Bible says he called the light day and the darkness night. And then there's a phrase that's repeated through all the days of creation. So the evening and the morning were the first day. This is the Jewish, this is where the Jewish people get the accounting of their days comes from. It starts from the first appearing of the stars in the evening to the first appearing of the stars in the next evening. Now, here in the United States, we go from midnight to midnight, right? Um, in our mind, I mean, I don't, I don't wake up at midnight and go, oh, it's a beautiful day. You know, it's in the morning, right? It's daylight. I get up in the morning and, oh, it's, I'm, I'm cheerful in the mornings usually. By the end of the day, I'm not so cheerful. But I, I start out pretty good. But, but, you know, our mornings, that's the start of our day. But God's day starts differently. God's day starts from darkness and it goes to light. And I like that. Because that's the way God is with you and I. He takes us from spiritual darkness and he brings us into his marvelous light. It's a beautiful picture. Well, at this point, that sphere of earth material and water, it's probably began rotating on its axis there to, to get the day and the night and the dark and the light. Um, now, there are those who try to marry creation and evolution by saying that these are not actual 24-hour days, but they're evolutionary periods of time. They're eons of time. And that's known as the day-age theory. 
and uh, they basically go to the word yom, which is the word Hebrew word for day. It can mean a 24-hour period, but it can also mean a period of days or a time frame of days, a number of days. In fact, you know, you look in the Bible, and the Bible talks about the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord, it's not just a specific day, but it includes the rapture of the church. It includes the tribulation period, the millennium. There's this day of the Lord, and it's not a single uh, 24-hour day. But in the Bible, whenever yom is accompanied by a number or the words mornings or evenings, it always means a literal 24-hour day. Plus, if you think about it, it's really illogical if you would say uh, if, that this was this, this period of time because think about it if plants were created in the eon of time called day three this big chunk of time years millions of years whatever how could they survive without sunlight uh, when the sun was created on the eon of time called day four you know plants could easily survive one 24-hour period without sunlight but i don't think millions of years and uh, you know you can call me a simpleton one of the things that I've, you know, the older I get, one of the things I've just started feeling is, you know, I'm just going to take God at his word. I, I, I don't need to figure out all these different things. I mean, it's great for Bible study and stuff. It's good for conversation. But I'd rather just let the scripture says, say what it says. Take God at his word. Um, and I know that, like, going back to the gap theories, there's modifications to the gap theories. There's a lot, of, a lot of people with a lot of convincing arguments, and I'm not here to change anybody's mind, by the way. Um, I'm just sharing with you that I've changed my mind about it. Um, it's certainly not worthy of argument or division. Um, but, you know, I guess for me, I don't necessarily have to have all the answers. And, and you know, I can wrap my head around I don't, I don't have to have an answer I don't have to wrap my brain around every loose end or what I think is a loose end regarding creation when it comes to God I'm perfectly okay with mystery um, if I could understand and explain away everything related to God you know would God still be worthy of my worship well it seems to me that God anticipated day-age theorists. And if you're here, I hope you're not offended, but, uh, but it's almost like Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, you know? He says, the light he called day, and the darkness he called night. Can you say day? Very good. <laughs> I should have had a sweater on when I did that. But, uh, you know, it's, it's like he spelled it out. Hey, this day, it's got nar- uh, light that he called day and night they called darkness. It's not like this period of time. In fact, Moses, instructing the children of Israel, um, he told them to observe a 24-hour period known as the Sabbath. He said this, Exodus 20.11, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So I don't know how they can get that, but we're talking about a 24-hour period known as day one here. Verse 6, Then God said, Let there be a firmament, a firmament, in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. So the evening and the morning were the second day. So with this firmament, it's also translated expanse. There's this, it's basically God created the atmosphere surrounding the earth. 
And notice that God divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. What is that? Well, what I think it is, is that there was this canopy of water molecules, this vapor canopy that would give kind of a greenhouse effect around the earth. It would create a stable warmth. Um, Light would still be able to penetrate it. And after the sun, because remember the sun's not created yet, but after the sun is created, it would filter out any harmful radiation. Uh, And that, to me, makes perfect sense when you think about before the flood, before that canopy broke up people lived so many years like adam 900 and some years old or 800 years old these people lived for so such a long time because they didn't have those harmful radiation that you and i have now um and it also explains how the flood occurred when the bible says that the windows of heaven were open and for the very first time it's like god caused that vapor to condense condensate condense and all of a sudden we had this torrential rainfall that the world had never experienced before it makes perfect sense when you, when you consider it in what the Bible says about the flood and about creation. Verse 9, Then God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. So if the waters were gathered into one place, this is how smart I am. If the waters were gathered into one place, then the earth must have been gathered into another place. And uh, that's kind of the way I think. But um, I'm, I think probably it was one continent, one supercontinent. To me, that would, again, going back to the flood, man, it would explain how animals like kangaroos, right? Kangaroos are only found in Australia. How did they end up on the ark? Well, if, it was, if, if we had one supercontinent in the beginning, no problem. They came from all over uh, to the the ark. What's interesting about that, in Genesis chapter 10, verse 25, that we'll get to in a few minutes. No, I'm kidding. We won't get to Genesis 10. You're probably like, I'm going to turn into a fossil before he gets done with chapter 1. But in Genesis chapter 10, verse 25, we have this genealogy, and it says, To Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg. For in his days the earth was divided and his brother's name was Joktan. It's like, wait a minute. What do you mean the earth was divided? Well, it's possible that's this is what I think. It's possible this is when this continent broke up into what we have now, what we see now. Verse 11. Then God said, let the earth bring forth, grass, bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit trees that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the third day. What's fascinating about this is that the soil was already nutrient-rich to allow plants to grow on day three. It's not like God didn't have to go out and work the fields. He didn't have to apply compost. There's no manure to spread because there's not even any animals yet. And yet the earth, the ground was nutrient-rich enough to cause plants to grow right there on that day. And the earth was already... uh, uh, I mean, the plants, they already had seeds. The trees already had fruit. So God created this maturity in the earth, evidently. 
If you think about it, you know, trees, you cut down a tree and you can see the growth rings, right? Every year there's a, new, there's a new ring, basically. Well, these trees, they would have had to have already had the growth rings in them, even though they were created that day. Fascinating. Think about Adam. You know, the Bible doesn't say, and Adam was the cutest baby that ever lived, right? He wasn't born a baby. He was created a mature adult. So I don't have any problem when I get to these things. To me, it's like, okay, God said it. It's the way it is. If you can believe that God created the heavens and the earth from everything out of nothing, then why do you struggle with, well, you know, how could, he, how could the trees, you know, not have rings or whatever like that? Or how, you know, how could he create that like that? I don't have a problem with it. Verse 14. Then God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night. And let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, so the evening and the morning were the fourth day. So it isn't until day four that God creates the sun, the moon, and the stars. But remember, light already existed. Plants are already growing on the earth. This flies in the face of evolutionary theory. It's all backwards to the sequence that evolution has to have. So he created the greater light. Well, that's the sun, right? Created to provide light and rule the day, and the lesser light, which would have been the moon, to rule the night. So the sun... And then he tells us that the sun, moon, and stars were not only created for light, but also to be for signs, for seasons, for days, and for years. Now, again, there's, boy, we could, we could spend Bible studies on each one of these days, but, you know, there's stars in the galaxies that are thousands, if not millions, of light years away from us. I mean, they're, they're on the far end of the universe, basically. Um, and if the Earth is only about 6,000 years old, give or take a few, um, a few thousand maybe or something, whatever. But if the Earth is only about 6,000 years old, how can we be seeing lights from stars and galaxies that are many more light years away than 6,000 years? You think about that. Well, again... God created a mature world with starlight already present on day four. That's, I just, that's what it says. That's what I believe. Um, it's just like he created plants with seeds and fruit, just like he created Adam as a mature man, tree, trees that probably already had growth rings and soil that was nutrient-rich. It's no problem for God. Now, when you get to this verse, are there any astronomers here? Not astrologers, astronomers? Nobody raised their hand. Okay. Astrophysics? Anybody that's, you know, I feel really bad for astronomers, for astrophysicists. You know, anybody who spends thousands of dollars on an education to studying the stars, spent countless hours studying them, um, it's their life's vocation and passion. And all God tells us, it's almost like, oh, and by the way, he made the stars. It's like, what? Couldn't you have, like, given us some more detail? I mean, couldn't you have explained how you did that? Now, other scriptures tell us that God, uh, you know, God knows the stars. He gave each one a name and everything. So there's a little bit more information. But when we go here, he, God created the sun, the moon, and oh, and by the way, he created the stars. You know, there are so many th- things like that that we'd love to know more about. 
you know, we can gather from the scriptures, evidently the angels were created before mankind. The Bible tells us that, that they were pre- present and rejoicing at creation. It's like, you know, God, can you give us more details about the angels? Can you, can you tell us how you created them and more about them, you know? Um, there's so many things that we'd love to know more about. I'd love to know more about that verse in Peleg's day, the earth was divided. I mean, it's like, what? you left me hanging there, God. Why can't you just tell me more? Uh, like the stars, like, oh, by the way, I made the stars also. But I think there's a reason why. And, and of course, I don't have God's mind, so I can tell you exactly why. But, but this is one of the reasons, I think, why. Genesis is the story of how we began, mankind. It's the story of how sin entered the human race. It's the story of how God so loved the world that he sent his only son to die for it. Those other things are nice to know, and and maybe someday we'll be standing in heaven and we can ask God and he'll reveal all that to us. But God wants us to know certain things, and what he wants you and I to know is that he feels um, are important for us. What is that? He created you. He planned you before time even began. Now, maybe, maybe to your parents, you were an unchan- unplanned pregnancy. It's like, whoops, you know. Um, but, you know, you weren't to God. God planned your life. He has a plan for your life. In fact, once you come to faith in Christ Jesus, God has a plan. He's got good works prepared for each one of you and for me to do. And it was planned since the beginning of before the world was created. God had a plan. You're not here in this life by chance. In fact, I would even submit you're not even in this room here by chance this morning. God has a plan and a purpose for each one of us. And that purpose and that plan, was, it was planned out even before he began to create the universe. I mean, he knew you and I would sin against him. He knew that we'd rebel against him. And he had a plan back then to redeem you and I from our sin. You know, let me just ask you rhetorically, do you know what God's plan is for your life? Are 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 you following the will of God for your life? First of all, do you have a relationship with him? Is he your Lord and Savior? You know, God's will is that no one perishes, but everyone comes to faith in Christ Jesus. He loved you so much, even before earth began, before creation began, before history, before time began, he had you in mind, and he sent his son to die on the cross for you. And once you become a born-again Christian, now he's got, he's, got, he's got a life planned for you of what he wants you to do to glorify him in his life. Are you doing those things this morning? Are you submitted to the Holy Spirit? Are you, are you seeking God's will daily? Lord, what do you want me to do today? I just want to close with this. Psalms 8, verse 4. David, just thinking about... just the magnitude of God's thoughts. And, and he just says, what is man that you're mindful of man, of mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? Well, you know, we're, it seems to me like we're so insignificant and yet in God's eyes we're not insignificant. And he, his thoughts, he's thinking about you. He's, he, he, you're in his mind and he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to visit you, to visit us, to, to become a man, to live among us, to pay the price for our sins. Why don't you stand up? We're going to stop there, and we're going to continue on uh, Genesis chapter 1 next week.
You know, if I could just, if there's anything I could impart to you this morning, is just the thought, the knowledge, the realization that God loves you, and you've always been a part of his, his will, his plan, and he's got a purpose for your life. And so I just want to leave you with that, and uh, let's go, Lord, in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for um, giving us the account of creation. Lord, I know that we'd love to know even more than what you've revealed to us, but Lord, you've revealed enough to us for us to know that you love us, and that you sent your son to die on the cross for us, and that, Lord, you have a pr- plan and a purpose for each one of our lives that no one is insignificant in this room. And so, Lord, I just pray for each and every person here this morning. Lord, I pray first and foremost that they do have a relationship with you. Lord, that they know uh, that they've confessed that, you, that they are a sinner and they've, they've invited you to come into their heart. Lord, they've repented. They've turned away from their sins and invited you in to be their Lord and their Savior. And Lord, I pray for each and every person here who has made that commitment, maybe recently or maybe decades ago. Lord God, that they might remember, that, that they might be reminded this morning that you planned good works for each one of us to do. And Lord God, I pray that we would be seeking your will. Lord, that we would be submitted to your plan and to your purpose. And so I thank you for reminding of, uh, of us, us of this this morning. And Lord, I pray your blessing upon each and every person here today. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.